Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Garrick Small on the topic, Catholic Social Conscience. This June 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Dr. Garrick Small is an economist and associate professor at Central Queensland University. And thanks for having me back. I find that when I talk at events like this, especially when I experiment a little bit, I wonder whether I'm ever going to get a second invitation. So the last talk mustn't have been too bad because Arlette's invited me back again. Tonight what I want to do is talk about a topic which um, is pretty close to you know, my central um, research interest, the expression that academics use these days. And it's also going to be a little bit of an experiment, okay? Um, because a couple of the ideas I'm going to go over with you are things which I'm actually preparing or, or started to put together for a conference that's coming up later in the year. Uh, it turns out I won't be talking at, so you get the ideas instead. Um, and I'll sort of make a distinction there when we get on to that. What I want to cover tonight is looking at some ideas that are very fundamental to economics and then I'm going to talk a bit about the way that relates to our faith and then I'm going to talk about the way that the economics of our entire planet is going and then I'm going to come back to Catholic social thought. So we're going to be bouncing around a little bit but that's the game plan. Okay, we're going to sort of start with um, what we're all here for, um, our relationship to God. Then I want to look at some economics. I want to talk about the state of the world economy, and then I want to draw that back to our faith. Okay, so that's what we're doing. And so a little bit is a little bit experimental, and I'll tell you what parts that are, so you don't have to go home and say. This is what's in the catechism, right? Because this is just very speculative. Okay. I want to start by getting us to think about the way that we often think in terms of justice. Our world is one which is very much justice rights oriented. And so when we think about economic order, we're thinking about policies and whether the government should fix something or whether the market should fix something. All of those kind of things. That's working from the point of view of saying they should do it and they'll get into trouble or they'll be stopped or they'll be put in a jail or they'll be fined. All that sort of stuff. It's justice thinking. Before you get to justice, and justice is a very, very important thing, behind justice is charity. And we often forget that. But all of the rights we talk about and all of the obligations and when we sort of get the government to fix something or the market to fix something, behind that needs to be an attitude of charity. And I'll just start off with this quote from St Bonaventure. If one does not love one's neighbour, it is not easy to do him justice. And so much of our world is worked in terms of getting my rights, getting a just outcome. But if St Bonaventure's right, we should be thinking about loving our neighbour first 
and then the justice will work out both in both directions. Let's look at how that pans out when we get to something as hard-nosed as economics. Economics is very important because it puts the beans on the table and uh, we need to keep our bodies alive. People have been talking about economics I think ever since Adam was a boy. And what I'd like us to look at, I'm not going to go through a lot of economic theory, but just some attitudes to economics. We all need to go to work or sort of get our, our, our pay one way or another. And we normally think about the, op- the alternatives in the way that economies are organised in terms of left and right socialism and capitalism, um, all that sort of thing. But what I'd like us to think about tonight is that behind that we can think about how it is that humans relate to each other. And so I want to look at two possibilities. One is that humans are creatures, body and soul, that are social, have an intellect, so they're reasonable, and a will so they can make free will decisions and take responsibility for those. And the best of human behaviour is when we're civilised, which means that we use self-restraint to will the good of the other. That means that I might have the power to do something, maybe something that you may find offensive, that I might enjoy doing, but I choose not to do it. And I think you do that as well. If we had little kids in here, we'd probably find that they'd have the power to make a lot of noise and they would enjoy that. The rest of us wouldn't. But they've got to learn what it is to be civilised. And so that's one view. Humans, as reason and will, and they work on self-restraint and decide, consciously choose the common good. The other alternative is to look at humans as self-interested individuals. That means that I wake up in the morning and I decide what I'm going to do today and I'm going to decide what's going to be right for me and I'm going to decide whether running my business being honest or dishonest, profitable or unprofitable, lazy or or diligent, is simply a decision that I make for me. And largely that's the language that one way or another, maybe more subtly put, we find pretty pervasive today. Especially we've got a lot of advertisements that tell you what you deserve. And people are out to be successful, which means get more for me. And so there's these two views of human nature. Now, late Holy Father, um, Pope John Paul II, talked about the question or the problem of anthropology. And by that, he used a very fancy word to get us to think about the way that anthropology can refer to the name of a science, but it will also refer to a person's idea of what it is to be human. And the late Holy Father was saying that the, um, there's this war going on, actually a culture war. So that's the debate. I want to introduce you to some of the people that have spoken on either side of that debate. And there have been quite a few. You can just go through what's coming up there, but a few photos of different people. Everyone from Aristotle, G.K. Chesterton, a bunch of popes, a handful of saints, and a few 
laymen, both living and deceased. And then on the other side, the apostles of man as a self-interested individual, you've got people like Adam Smith, David Ricardo, right down to uh, John Maynard Keynes, Milton Friedman, who you might have thought about or heard of, and uh, Michael Novak, who some of you may have thought about or heard of. And they really form the two sides of this debate. And the debate has been going on for a long time. Aristotle wasn't born yesterday, and people have been talking about this from these two perspectives all the way down through time. And I could put a few ancients back behind Adam Smith. But I want to give you the idea that these basic attitudes have been debated for a long time. I've given a bunch of people in the middle who are important if you start to explore this. Um, John Ruskin, Henry George and a bunch of others. Uh, and they sort of make up the landscape. Okay? The people in the middle are taking about a halfway, uh, a 50-50 bet. What is an each way bet? If we look up there, the people on the left, Adam Smith with his wig, I can't say big nose, but that'd be impolite, um, represents a group of people, and as far as I'm aware, I think only one of them calls themselves a Christian. People on the other side, only one of them wasn't. The people in the middle, well, 50-50. Okay. Um, and I think they're all sort of well-meaning people. So we've got a bit of a debate, and you can start to see a kind of culture war there between the Christians and the non-Christians. Okay. And that's some of the ideas that I want to explore as we go along. Now, I'm going to introduce, I said I'm going to do a little bit of economics, and I was going to move in and do a bit of theology. Okay? This is where it becomes speculative. What I want to do is take you through a couple of ideas, just quickly, on the Trinity. Personally, I'm beginning to suspect that understanding the Trinity as much as we can, it's a mystery, probably has the capacity to answer all of the social questions that we'll ever have, and then some. And I'm going to apply just a little tiny bit to the economic question tonight. But I want us to think about the way that the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost get along with each other. When we go back to St Thomas or St Bonaventure, after thinking a lot about it, they understood the way that the Trinity came to be an absolute necessity. And there are two, actually three types of love that circulate within the Trinity. Firstly, there's a generative love that comes from the Father. There's the humble, receptive, obedient love that comes from um, the, um, uh, the Son, the Logos. And then there's a different type of love which causes the Holy Spirit. And so when we say the creed at Mass, we say that the Son was begotten by the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that's what's kind of in this diagram. This is fairly important because if we understand these, we can start to understand other places where this Trinitarian logic starts to work. 
In fact, one of the ways that we understand or we can show, we can prove that the Trinity is an absolute necessity within God is to start by looking at the world and the way that a whole lot of things work in threes and then sort of take it back to the Trinity. I'm going to do it the other way. Many cultures, and it's one of my fascinations, make a very simple observation. Many non-Christian cultures. They realise that the world was made by some spiritual being. They may not be Christians, but they seem to all know that. They know that God, whatever they call him, made the world. I'm simply calling it property. And the neat thing about when he made it was that he gave it freely as a gift, kind of on loan in some traditions. Um, in the Old Testament we talk about um, uh, the words of, of, of God through the prophets are that we're sojourners, we're, we're visitors, we're travellers through the world. But he gives us the, the world. Now, on the other hand, for people that end up owning a little chunk of the world, we actually receive it without having to pay God for it and without having to actually obey him explicitly. Now this is worth thinking about. If you go home to your house tonight or hop in your car, just think about it as a gift from God. I was, had a little sports car once and I was so wrapped when I got it because it was just really, really great fun. I was a young single chap. And I wrote a little prayer that I used to pray when I hopped into it. And it was, Lord, thank you for this, your gift. Help me always to use it for your will. Amen. Because the car was such a gift. And I knew that I could drive around like a rat bag. And so it was, you know, God keep me honest. Now that kind of attitude we can use for all of our possessions. And it means that when we've got something, we can use it like a rat bag or we can freely choose it to use it as part of our relationship with God. Whether it's our house, our factory, our computer, whatever it is. But we don't have to. The extent that we freely choose to do that is the extent that we move closer to our blessed Lord, and to a certain extent, the better chance we're going to have to get to heaven, if you want to think of it in those kind of self-interested terms. But that's the theological part, right? And so by taking the gift that God gives you, and then giving it back to God by sort of managing it, using it and enjoying it well, you end up with doing exactly the same thing here that what you have as a relationship between God the Father, generative love, who made the world, and God the Son, in that receptive love. And so it becomes a relationship of love. Then we have the Holy Spirit. Now how does that fit in with this Trinitarian logic for property economics? Well, St Thomas Aquinas said that it's not wrong for a rich man to take as private what was previously common. So if I'm walking along in the forest somewhere and I look down and I see a great big lump of gold, a right? great big nugget, and I pick it up. I'll put it in my pocket. It's mine. Yeah? It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. At no point has the church ever said that you should give that back. You can't have private property. But what the church continues to say is that if I take that, hold it with mine, and walk past some beggar in the street who's starving to death, 
then in fact I've sinned. So there's no problem with me having the gold nugget in my pocket, it's mine, but I have an obligation out of charity, not out of justice, to use my wealth, whatever it is, for the good of others. If you want to go back and go into scripture, there is a delightfully puzzling parable that I think confuses a lot of priests when they come to it every year. It's about a bad uh, steward. You know, the fellow who, um, you know, his master was going to, you know, basically throw him out, and so he got all of his, his, his debtors in, and um, he said, okay, you, you owe my master 100 bushels of wheat or whatever it was, and write it down to 50, you know, or 100 measures of oil, write it down to, 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 to 80. Yeah? And his master said, okay, then I'm still kicking you out, but you're pretty shrewd. Go and have a look at that in your Bible sometime and read the following paragraph because it says some really curious things about money. And one of it is, apart from the very famous quote about no, money, that uh, mammon, that, that tainted thing, it says use it to make friends. Because if you can't use what is not yours, you will never be able to appreciate and use what really is yours. What was the good Lord saying to us there? There are things that God gives us in our life that we don't own, we don't deserve, but he just lends them to us. All of the property. And he expects us to use those to make friends, in other words, to do good for others, so that we will be able to use what is ours, which is our destiny to be within him forever in heaven. And so it makes sense of that little bit of scripture. Now this is a speculative part, by the way. Right? So you don't have to believe it, but I think it makes sense. Yeah? I think St. Bonaventure is, this is St. Bonaventure, by the way, and uh, our Holy Father, I was um, saying a little bit earlier, did his uh, PhD on St. Bonaventure, and so I think it's the same, he's kind of coming back into fashion. And he's really a, a man for our times, I think. So let's put the Holy Spirit in or the third part of the Trinity in this Trinitarian logic. In this approach, this, this, this Trinitarian thinking, this three-way thinking, God gives freely to somebody who has a privilege in the community. They're a landowner, or maybe they're a factory owner, or maybe they're a, a manager or a CEO, or maybe a university lecturer, whoever they are. There's somebody with some kind of property, some influence, some power in the community, Okay. And that is always freely given. Even just having two legs and being able to walk is something that's freely given. Yeah? And we have the obligation to use that freely for, for others. I find that really exciting. Now in economics, always you have circumstances where you have property owners and people that don't have property. Here it's up as the tenant. Okay? And that means that there's this free opportunity for someone who has property not to squeeze the tenant or to squeeze their customers or squeeze their, their, their uh, employees to the very last drop, yeah? but to give them whatever they can. And so in a way, the property owner, however you understand it, has an opportunity to love God by loving those who don't have the same amount of economic power as they do. That's a Trinitarian 
logic of, of property and economics, I think. But we live in a world, a modern world, where God is out of the picture. And so let's look what happens then. Take God out. All of those relationships disappear. The only relationship is somebody who has picked up the gold nugget, put it in their pocket, and when someone comes along, they say, yes, I'll lend it to you at interest. In other words, I'm going to get every little bit of goodness out of this power that I've got. I've got it because I'm so wonderful. And I don't answer to anybody, thank you very much. And so there's a kind of like a war going on in the relationship. And it's a war of power. Now, I'm using the expression as property owner and tenant because as I work in property economics, that's kind of the model I use. But you can use it for anyone, the, 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 the factory owner, the shopkeeper, whoever it is. And of course, the economically weak party, in this case the tenant, simply has to pay. We don't need God, we don't need a spiritual world, so this is the logic, the economic logic of materialism. And the relationships there, unlike the relationships in heaven and the ones that are intended for us on earth, are done in terms of opposition, tension, exploitation, power, hatred, total antithesis of what we're called to be. So I give some um, names to those. And the whole thing just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't have any point, apart from how much you can get out of it. And I think that's largely the way that economic theory works. Economic theory uh, works on the idea of the self-interested individual. It works on the idea that self-interest is the mainstream that keeps um, society working. So I'm here tonight because I want to show off because I'm self-interested. You're here for some reason. Okay, but it's out of your self-interest, your selfishness. Now, if that's the reason that we all kind of relate to each other, I think it's going to be a sad old world. But unfortunately, that's the logic that's behind our modern culture. Okay, that's the theology part. I want to come back and now look at global economics, the way that this kind of thinking um, hands out when it takes over the material organisation of the... um, of the world. And I want to talk about something that economists are very comfortable with. It's called the paradox of thrift. The paradox of thrift goes like this. The way it's normally introduced to economic students is that if we all save all of our money and we don't spend it, you know, imagine that we are all of the people that produce everything there is in the, in the, in the country, what will happen to all the shops? We're so busy saving. Will shops make any money? They won't, will they? So it'll be a sad old place. And so everyone likes to get poor. And so if you're doing really well and you've got money sort of coming out your pockets and you stuff your, your mattress and all the rest of it, in fact, the, the very doing of saving causes poverty in the future. That's the way that it's, it's normally introduced to economic students. But there's a bit more to it than that. Because in a real economy... In most cases, you get some people who are able to save and other people who aren't. For a lot of people, you've got a big family, a single income, all that sort of stuff. There's not a lot of saving going on, regardless of what your income is, I think. Maybe there are limits to that. But for some people in the uh, community, they do have a situation where their income is so high that they can live quite comfortably and still put some 
something away. Huh? We all like the idea of saving. We've all been trained to do that and thought it's a very good thing. And to a certain extent, to save for our future, our kids' weddings, or whatever it is we want to save for is, is a good and healthy thing. But when we save too much, it does have the effect of drawing out of the economy the dollars that should be being the income for the other people. And the problem is that if you end up in a society where there, you don't have to have many people, but if you have enough serious saving going on, especially saving that goes intergenerationally, so sort of passed on as a family fortune and it rolls up, it actually draws out of the economy all that purchasing power. And I won't go through all of the nuts and bolts of it, but basically for every dollar that I put in my pocket and save and don't spend, that's one dollar less production that has to be done, one dollar less wages that someone's going to be earning. So someone's going to be out of the unemployed as a result of my saving. And that becomes a massive problem as it rolls up. Okay. Uh, and so intergenerational saving definitely causes unemployment. Now, <clears throat> we didn't have much intergenerational saving before mm, the 1400s. Once it started to get away, especially by the time you get into the 1600s, a couple of solutions came up. One was to encourage people to borrow. Okay, I put the dollar in my pocket, or maybe $100 in the pocket. If I can encourage you guys to go out because you don't have as higher income as me, and borrow some money, you know, give you a credit card, something like that, and so the $100 that is in my pocket that hasn't been spent out of the economy that would have caused me unemployment, now you guys are borrowing $10 each or something, and spending, the employment problem's gone, hasn't it? You see that? It's a little bit tricky. It happens. And so one solution to this, if I'm going to be saving, because I've got the, the, the resources to do that, if I can get you guys to go further and further into debt, the problem will go away. Is there a problem with that? Yeah? You both been saving, and there's not much that happens today, is actually invested somewhere. It's Yes, but you see, it's invested in things like uh, the secondary property market, oh, the secondary um, uh, finance markets, like into shares or into land. And the curious thing about that is that let's imagine, and I'll, this is a little bit of a direction, but it's a good question. Okay, if the investment was to actually buy a new machine to employ an extra person, I'd say you go a long way to solving the problem. But if I buy a block of land that last year was $100,000 and this year is now $150,000, let's say that's one shop. Right? So I buy a shop. 100000 becomes 150 or $1 million becomes... Right. Have I enabled any more employment, any more production? What actually happens is that when I invest in that way, I guarantee that I get more money coming back into my pocket for more investment. And so, in fact, I sort of roll up my, my wealth. Yeah? So the, the, the question about investment is, is certainly an interesting one, uh, but it's a little bit more complex than it appears. Yeah? But either way, once you get into this investment kind of routine, 
uh, you do end up with uh, a number of things. Unemployment is one of them, but also uh, business cycles. If only there weren't serious business cycles, certainly nothing like the kind of business cycles we've got um, in recent times before uh, the 16th century. The first major depression uh, happened in about the 1530s. Okay. The other uh, solution is getting back on track here is, uh, okay, we look at, or we might encourage borrowing. The problem with borrowing is that people can't always borrow that much. You get the point, you have to stop. Yeah? So you guys are going to borrow a certain amount, but after that, uh, you, you can't do that anymore. So that sort of runs out of steam. The second solution... What's that? Well, it sort of happens from time to time, and that's where the cycles kick in. Okay. Uh, the next thing is to find new markets. Now, that is largely what powered the colonial enthusiasms uh, from more of the 16th century onwards. Okay? England went out and developed this empire. Why? Partly to get cheap labour, but also to get new markets. Why is China important? Partly to build stuff cheaply for us, but also so that we can sell stuff to. And so this expanding need for markets is important. But again... While that's worked for the best part of half a millennia, we get to a point where we can't find any new markets. China's opening up. Maybe Africa is kind of a little bit down the track. But after that, we run out of people in the world to sell stuff to. And this is something which is happening in our time of history. It wasn't an issue uh, back in the 16 and 1700s when people were discovering new countries and new people and that sort of thing. But the finding new markets is one way of, of, of getting over this inner disorder in the way that economics is practised. More recently in history, we had the development of limited liability companies, we call them in Australia. More generally, we call them uh, joint stock companies. Situations where we're going to go into some business and I put in some money, you put in some money, so we're in there joint Okay, uh, stock, uh, stock market, um, you know, shares is what's really been talked about there. In the middle of the 1800s, there were very, very, for the early part of the 1800s, there were very, very few companies as we know them today. They had to be established by Royal Charter and that sort of thing. So there was the um, East India Company and a handful of others, but very, very few. Around the middle of the 1800s, the laws changed to make it very easy to establish these independent companies. So it wasn't you and I in partnership, it was a company that you and I happened to own together. They are independent legal entities, independent legal people, in a sense. They just don't happen to have a body and soul, they never die. And that is curious, because if we've got this possibility uh, that we are talking about in the last slide, of rolling up wealth which has the capacity to cause the unemployment the cycles and a number of other problems and if we've got something which isn't intergenerational because it lives forever like the BHP company or something then you've got quite a curious phenomenon this was being debated quite actively in the 1800s about the time when they were being considered and legalised because a limited liability company can do one of two things. It can either grow, if it's coming along, or it will simply shrivel up and disappear and go bankrupt into receivership. If it grows, how big does it get? We have a limit to how big we're going to get. 
But a limited liability company has really no limit. The small ones tend to be the more profitable, but they tend to get bought up by the larger ones. And I go into all the financial details, but basically if I've got a particular rate of profit, and you've got a little company that's making a higher rate of profit, if I buy your company, that lifts my rate of profit. So I will buy all the little ones that are more profitable, better managed. But by the time I do buy all of those, I now corner the market, so I've got certain economies of scale, I can buy bigger machines, and so I'm able to increase my rate of profit again. And so there are all these reasons why it's an advantage to grow as a company. So we end up with what we call monopoly and scale effects. And I've explained the, um, uh, the benefits of, of acquiring others. Now if this process goes on, you've got this eternal legal entity, which is simply either growing or going bust, okay, or getting eaten. Okay. What's going to happen eventually? Very logically, if you think it through, there's not going to be a lot of them in the long term. This is the sort of stuff that people in the 1800s were really agonising about before they actually said, yes, let's make it easy to have limited liability companies. Because they could see that eventually there'd be a handful of really, really big ones and all of the others would simply get acquired. And so companies do grow by absorbing others. What's the end point? A small number of extremely large organisations. Economists now, I won't say we actually call it formally the law of six. We kind of giggle about it in sort of, you know, over coffee or something. But there does seem to be the tendency for most types of businesses to shake down to about half a dozen major global players. You look at the car industry, there are about half a dozen very, very large car companies. There are a handful, there are, you know, a number of, of smaller ones, but they only sort of pick up the crumbs. But the major manufacturers number about six. Look at software companies. Um, you know, think of any area, chemicals, uh, pharmaceuticals. Okay. This is sort of shakedown, and it seems to be that about six is where it sort of slows down. I'm not sure if it's not going to, you know, it's going to stay there, but it's certainly less than 10. And these days, if you deal with almost any public listed company, you've got to ask, well, who owns that company? And who owns the company that owns that company? And who owns the company that owns the company that owns the company? Unless that happens to be a new bright one, which is only just kind of getting launched off. I've got a friend who's just um, turned his, his, his company public, and in a sense... His retirement strategy is that he expects his company to be simply sort of gobbled up by a large, actually software provider, um, you know, as he retires. He doesn't expect it to remain as an independent company owned by a whole lot of little shareholders in the long term. That's what happens, the law of six. Now that has some pretty, look, major sort of issues or questions that sort of come up. Firstly, what does that do to things like this sort of roll-up of, you know, the paradox of thrift? Our dependency on debt, our dependency on always bigger markets. But also, when you get down to that very small number of companies basically managing all of, or the great majority of our material goings-on, that becomes massive concentration of power not just economic power, but also eventually political power and all the rest of it. They can run our lives. And so that causes a lot of people to be concerned. 
I'll look at one more um, aspect of this, and then we'll go and look at some data. I've mentioned the, the, uh, the finance markets. By finance markets, it's a fancy name for any place where you can invest your savings a bit more creatively than putting it in the bank. The stock market, or the equities market, um, the investors there, and I guess you can understand if you were doing it yourself, you had a few thousand dollars to park somewhere, you wouldn't put it in, a, in, a, in an investment that returned 5% when down the road you can get another investment that returns 12 would you? Make sense? And so markets tend to demand optimum profits. There are a few complications in there, but basically that, that's, that, that's the ultimate uh, criteria. Profits tend to grow when companies sell, for, sell their products for more than they need to. I'm told that with the move to mobile phones, it actually costs considerably less to run a mobile network, get the calls from one place to another, than it does with landlines. Think about that next time you're on a mobile phone, talking to somebody in the next street, okay, where you're being sort of charged a dollar a minute or what have you, when if you sort of phone up with a regular telephone, you could pay 15 cents and talk all day. So there's sort of something kind of going on there, it's a little bit peculiar, right? But the companies are selling that product, the mobile phone services, for more than they need to in order to cover their costs and all the rest of it. In classical economic terms, that's violating just price. So that means I'm using my property, I own the mobile phone, I might be Mr Optus or something, and I'm selling my services to you for more than I need to to get a fair return. If I was to stand behind before God and say, you know, I'm, I'm using the property you gave me uh, to make friends. And Mr Optus, well, I go with Optus, so I think they're all right, but you know what I mean. So you violate just price, and I don't really have to go into what just price is. I think you get an idea of what that is. That's a fair price, not ripping some people off. The curious thing about it is that people say, well, it's a market. The market forces cause me to charge here. Or if I don't, somebody else will come in. Or blah, 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 blah. If we look closely at it, we could spend all night sort of just talking about this one point. But there's actually no one forcing you to rip somebody else off. If I had market power, and I know that I can charge you a dollar for something that only cost me 20 cents, and I could sort of live quite comfortably if I sold it to you for 30, yeah, pay all my costs and put beans on the table for my kids. The last 70 cents is pure me liking, me getting a good deal at your expense. I'm not forcing you to do that. I can charge you 30, I can even charge you 35, I guess, and you'd be really happy with me. Yeah? So no one's forcing you to. But the only thing that's forcing me is my own self-interest. Okay, so they're not forced to do that. Stock markets, when all of those numbers are done and the accountants do what they do, they give the returns that sort of go out as dividends to the share price, as share, uh, the, uh, the stockholders, the, uh, the owners of the, of the shares, and those um, shareholders earn a return, a bit the same as the kind of return that you and I might earn when we put our money in the bank and get some sort of interest deposit or interest return. The notion of 
Usury is the idea of earning an excess return on our wealth. It's a complicated and fairly subtle thing and a lot of people get sort of upset about talking about usury. But usury, in, and one of the reasons why we don't like to talk about it is that almost since the time of the apostles it's been recognised to be a serious sin. A mortal sin in fact. And for about half of the last 2,000 years it's been considered immoral and illegal in any Christian country. But today, usury, and I'll give you some quotes later on, appears to be extremely widespread throughout our economy and certainly in our finance markets. And I've just mentioned there that I'm guessing at present that the usury rate, more or less across our economy, is about 2%. Okay, so whatever you do by way of investments, you're probably getting a fair, a fair return, and so 2% of, of what you're getting, if you're getting 8%, it means you're getting 6% of genuine return and 2% of usury. But we don't know that, and again, that's maybe a little bit speculative, so don't go out and withdraw all your investments or your superannuation funds or something because Small said that. It's a little bit speculative. But it's certainly in there somewhere. It's an unexplored research issue. Let's look at the data. We live in a world of labour-saving devices. But does it save us labour? Michael Pussy uh, wrote a book, The Experience of Middle Australia. And what he found was that Australians generally, with our modern economy and with our advanced technology, are working extremely more than we were a generation ago. So our labour-saving, high-tech world is actually causing us to work harder. It's curious. I could go into that, but we might come back to it question time. Moreover, while we're working harder, our real level of wages is actually falling. And the rates of unemployment that we now consider reasonable would be hideous compared like, in the eyes of someone a generation ago. When I was first studying economics, about you know, 3% unemployment was kind of reasonable. About 25 was, was even better. Okay, and that was kind of like coming along. Now we're sort of up around, you know, two or three times that and sort of dealing with it, especially when you get to real unemployment because we disguise unemployment a lot to make the numbers look better. Okay? Uh, you're employed if you work one hour a week as far as the ABS is concerned. In the United States, there's a lot of rationalisation, the polite word for throwing people out of their jobs. Okay? And that's becoming documented. And so that disposable American, it's a, it's, a, it's a curious book, you probably can't read the title back there, it's too far away, but um, uh, just the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the physical and psychological, even um, you know, medical effect that it has on people is really quite hideous. Uh, and the rolling back the market is, uh, is sort of more data on the same. Lots and lots of work being done on this, and it's not being done by loopy reactionaries. These are quite sober scholars. Uh, the drive to Chinese wages, why am I saying that? I'm saying it because if I own a factory and I employ Australian workers paying Australian wages, 
I'm not going to be able to make as much profit as if I put my machines on a boat, take it over to China, make exactly the same thing. Okay? Everyone wants to buy it at the Chinese price, which means that you'll never be able to afford an Australian worker unless the Australian worker is willing to work for the same wages as... Now, I've got nothing against the Chinese. I would really like the Chinese to all have wages about the same as us. I think they'd be happier and I'd be happier but all of the people out there earning the companies and sort of earning the usury and all the rest of it would not be happy. So it's not going to happen. So they're sort of domestic things. On a grand scale, this sort of drive towards profits um, came home to me when I uh, got um, to know the case of a fellow by the name of John Perkins. This fellow, someone sort of knows John Perkins, um, was a uh, fairly smart, actually he wasn't a business graduate in the United States, but he had a job consulting to developing countries to help them with their development programs. And what he would do, he would go into the countries and he would um, sit down and work out, now maybe they needed some new roads or a new wharf or a new sugar mill or something, and he'd say, look, we can organise you some aid there, we can sort of get you an aid loan, we'll build you your infrastructure, whatever it is, and you'll make all of this money by having this extra industrial capacity and your company will then be really wealthy and comfortable and you'll be just like us in the United States and we'll work happily ever after and you can pay back the loan. Sound good? The only wrinkle in it was that part of Perkins's job was to make sure that the economic models, the cash flow projections and all the rest of it, looked a little bit rosier than they really were. The aid money was coming in form of loans from the United States. The people that, or the companies that actually made or built the infrastructure and the, the mills and the, and the other industrial developments happened to be American corporations. And so the dollars actually never left the American shores. The cash flows were cooked a little bit and that was Perkins's job. And so what happened was you had some place like Brazil that had a new you know, coffee manufacturing capacity, but Brazil would never be able to get itself out of debt, basically paying foreigners who never actually you know, brought anything into the country by way of employment or all the rest of it, um, but uh, basically made those developing countries more and more impoverished. Well, John Perkins got cold feet. And when you hear stories like that, you think, whoa, that's a little bit over the top. Except that it's totally documented and supported by you know, other material. And so John Perkins' Confessions of an Economic Hitman is worthwhile reading if you want to follow this up. And as I say, it's a fairly well-known case. Uh, but it's where the first world has really been exploiting the third world with aid. Big time. Then there's the central bank money game. You can find this on the internet. Type in the money masters, all one word, dot com, and you'll come up with a very interesting uh, website that has a lot of material on it. Uh, one of them uh, goes a little badge that looks like that because I just stole it off their internet site. I hope the copyright people don't mind. It's actually promoting their... Um, uh, shall we say, product, run by 
a very sound bunch of people. I've met one of them in Rome at a conference on St Thomas. So I think he's kind of got his bona fides in the right place. And the central bank money game is probably a topic for another talk. But quite simply, it's the way that organisations like the American Federal Reserve Bank are really making life eventually more difficult for the American country. And many other central banks are doing similar things in other countries. I withhold judgment on the Reserve Bank here in Australia, uh, but certainly it's a major problem in many, many free countries. And if you want to pursue the money masters, as I say, you can look at it in your own time and make your own decisions. But it appears to be something which, at least if even 10% of it is, um, is exactly as it is, then it's certainly a cause for concern. Last one I'll mention is what I'll call the US money game and weapons of mass destruction. Uh, in terms of economics, we tend to have uh, opinions that have been sort of given to us about countries like Iraq and now Iran and to a certain extent North Korea. One of the things that we're probably not so aware of because you don't tend to hear it so much on the news is that one of the things that those three countries have in common is that they all either have or have threatened to sell their oil in euros. And for that, they've become targets to be sort of taken over and their political structures destroyed and their leaders sort of demonised and all the rest of it. Now, I'm not saying that their leaders were really nice people. I'm told that Saddam Hussein used to kill civilians at the rate of about 13,000 per year. But I'm not saying that the current administration over there is doing much better because they're killing civilians at the rate of, guess, 13,000 per year, and that doesn't count the soldiers that they kill. Um, so it's a complicated issue. But when you look at the posturing that's being done at present to do the same thing to Iran on the pretext of its nuclear program, and a similar thing to North Korea, except the North Korea's, Koreans can see that they're not going to win this game and so they tend to be backing down, you can see that there's a little bit there to do with the importance of currency. Again, we might talk about currency and the central bank money game another night. We could do that all night here. So when we put the data together, and this is only a representative sample, um, most of the books, not fact, all of the books there, um, because the Money Masters is, uh, is actually a video, um, are all um, uh, quite sound, the research is quite public, and all the rest of it. It is not sort of loopy fringe stuff. But it gives you an idea, this is sort of the data that's out, and there's, there's, there's quite a, a long reading which I could give you if you want to uh, follow that up. But it gives you a little idea of the sort of things which happen in our global economy. Now I want some good news. Catholic economic thought. The proper name for this is Catholic social teaching. Because to the Catholic mind, economics is only just one part of the way we relate. Okay, so we're not going to go out and give an economic theory. And if you followed the stuff that I was going through with the Trinity, you should be able to see that we're not going to be giving policy or rules or laws because that's got to do with forcing people to do stuff. The Christian is somebody 
who has their primary orientation on God and then acts accordingly, out of freedom. And that's the way that God respects us in our human dignity. So let's look at Catholic social thought. First thing I want to say about Catholic social thought is that it represents a consistent organic development over a long period of time. By organic, I mean that it doesn't have revolutions. If you see revolutions anywhere, it's not a work of God, I don't think. And so Catholic social thought always kind of builds and it integrates. If you find someone coming out and say, hey, I'm a Catholic economist and I think St Thomas Aquinas was sort of totally out of his tree, in it, yes, fine, you might call yourself a Catholic, but you're probably not in harmony with the magisterium of the church. And the majority of people that are revolutionary in their Catholic economic thinking, either to the left or the right, and just about always stepping right away from the constant magisterial teaching of the church, especially the social encyclicals. That's very, very important. Where does it come from? Well, you'll always be able to find anything in the moral teaching of the church in scripture. It may not be there explicitly, like purgatory, but it will always be there. And you can always understand it better from going to scripture. And I won't go there tonight. It's really interesting to do. And that example of the parable I was telling you about is just one instance where you can understand the subtlety and the complexity and the absolute delight of what you find about economics in the Gospels. There's also tradition. I mentioned tonight that usury was considered immoral and illegal for the Christian part of our culture's last 2,000 years before the Protestants took over. It's also grounded on clear thinking. That doesn't have to be Christian, but by the time you add the Christian theology to the thinking of people like Plato, Aristotle and others, you end up with a delightfully consistent depth um, that, uh, say, you don't find in the uh, Eastern Orthodox churches that tend not to adopt that kind of um, rigour in their thinking. Okay? So I've got these three traditions and I think they all come from God. Catholic social thought, I think, was really perfected by the schoolmen. That's a techno name for the medieval philosophers. And I'm thinking there of uh, St Thomas Aquinas and St Bonaventure and a bunch of others. Perfected by those schoolmen, those medieval scholastic thinkers. And it's an aspect of loving one's neighbour. I guess I really started on that. It's also re- recognised recently by about a century of popes up to our late Holy Father. I think Pope Benedict just hasn't had time to write about economics and I look forward to when he does. Uh, but it sort of started with uh, Pope Leo Thirteenth, and um, I'll be getting onto that shortly. But also other Catholic thinkers like Chesterton, uh, G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc, um, and Natore Fanfani and Rupert Edera and a bunch of other names and those were some of the, the, the photos I put up there. Uh, one of my favourites is a fellow by the name of uh, Schumacher who wrote a book you know, way back uh, in the late 60s I think 
Small is beautiful, and I get my students to read it and think about it and chant the title of the book. The curious thing about Schumacher's book was that he wrote it, a bit like Chesterton when he wrote Orthodoxy, years before he became a Catholic. So Schumacher became a Catholic in the 70s. He's died now, but uh, a wonderful man. And he really thought his way into the church by seeing the wonder and the consistency of the thought in his area in economics through people like St Thomas, St Teresa of Avila and others. And that's the richness that we've got. Let's look at the Mm. The father of the Catholic social encyclicals, um, Pope Leo XIII, Rerum Navarum. This um, was back in 1890, a bit over a century ago now. This is one quote, and I don't like putting things like this up for my students because you can't read all that sort of stuff. I just want to take out a few words. Pope Leo XIII was concerned that the world was awash with rapacious usury. Now, usury today is a, is a term that economists just, you know, just, just shrink away from. I hate to talk about it. I have to be very, very careful, even amongst Catholic scholars, if I use that word, because it, it really upsets people big time. Well, what's the colloquial for usury? Uh, excessive interest is probably the best way of, of understanding it, but it's a little bit more complex than that. I think it can actually be expanded to be any situation where you take more than you share more than you justly, logically, rationally are entitled to. Uh, again, we could do usury just for a night. I think we did once. Pope Leo XIII um, recognised that this widespread usury was done by a few. Not many, but a few. By avaricious and grasping men Leaves the ladies kind of scot-free, I guess. But what did it do? It reduced unnumbered masses of non-owning workers to quasi-slavery. I've just spent a very short time in PNG, and it's um, delightful being up there. There are a whole lot of people up there who don't have anything, but are not poor. And they have an awful lot of spare time. They're not slaves. They don't have video players and all sorts of things, but they're quite happy. And Western observers come along and say, oh, look at the poverty in PNG, it's dreadful. And they get really affronted by that. They say, hey, we're not poor, we just don't have anything. Okay. But they're not slaves. And so they understand leisure. And again, I'll do a night on that one. This quote is really delightful because it has so much in it about our world today. Now, back in Pope Leo's time, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have global trade. Limited liability companies were only about 50 years kind of underway. And so there weren't, you know, General Motors and, you know, these mega companies that we've got today ruling the world. But he could still see it. Marvellous stuff. And he could see the logic of it. And the way that this thinking was going to eventually cause the world to be undone. And the world, to work this logic, was going to have to go out at a global level. 
You won't be able to survive as a little company. You have to be working at a global level. And even if you do that, you'll probably be gobbled up by somebody who's even bigger. But ultimately, by regress, there'll have to be a handful of the big ones. And they will hold all the purse strings and basically make all of the decisions. And it won't be freedom. You may not know it, but it won't be. In opposition to that, and largely following on from uh, Pope Leo XIII, uh, G.K. Cheston, Lear Bullock, thought about the condition of the world, and if you want to read about these things, you can't do better than read these two authors. They are really fantastic. You don't need to read modern authors, you don't need to read... Anyway, just go back to Cheston and you'll find that most of the understanding there was really good, and a lot of other stuff beside. Their solution, they suggested, was a economic system, uh, if you like, called distributism. Rather awkward term, but it had to do with a, a phrase that came from Pope Leo that he said that the ideal was that people should be allowed, encouraged to own their own property, but it should be widely distributed. Most of the people, you know, in that middle bunch of photos I had in the, in the early slides, most of those people, probably about two-thirds of them, believed in the wide distribution of property. Lots of little owners. And it's one of the things I'm, I'm currently just toying with at present. I suspect it's natural and healthy and just, perhaps, for people to own their house and their means of employment. But not a huge factory that sort of employs hundreds of thousands of people. By the time you get to that, then there are kind of ethical obligations that go out to other people. But if you own your own house and your own workshop, shop, factory, whatever it is, then about that stage, that is something that you you really don't have to feel in any way self-conscious about or get any ethical scruples about. And I'm sort of in the process of applying that to the question of land tax. That's another issue. So distributism is all about people owning small amounts of property and every owning a little bit. Chesterton had a lot of other insights. He was complaining about the way that these big businesses were taking over. And he said, well, you know, and if I was asking you guys, you know, anyone shopped at a Woolworths, right? Or a David Jones or a Myers, right? Or a Bunnings. They're all these huge shops. The little corner shops. You know, the menswear store or the ladies' wear store or the little hardware store. They're kind of going out of business, aren't they? Right? Uh, yeah, you don't even take them seriously. And GK was, was really concerned about this. He said, well, this is really dreadful because all these people are becoming unemployed as a result of big shops. He said, they're going to just ruin everything because there's going to be all these unemployed shopkeepers and other people. And we apply the same thing to the local mechanic. You know, you now go to the Ford dealership or something like that, you know, some mega organisation. And Cheston came up with this delightful way of stopping the big shops from taking over. He said, the way to avoid big shops is to avoid big shops. I don't think I'm ever going to sort of run out of, of, of uh, delight with that man. But uh, It's so easy, but it's so hard. Think about that next weekend. Tomorrow when you, you go to, to, to you know, get something, think about not going to a big shop, right? instead of going to the corner shop or the little, you know, and you won't do it most probably, right? because it's a bit cheaper. 
bit more convenient. Got the glossy sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I've tried doing it in recent years with yep. um, avoiding the four cent discount on petrol. Mm. And it is hard because you're trying to pass and you've got four yeah. cents a litre cheaper. You get used to it, you get in the habit. Yeah. Yep. You end up getting in the mindset of thinking, I hate it, place <laughs> and, and definitely not going to do it. Good on you. Yeah. Oh. There's been a lot recently on the morning commentator on talkback on Woolworths and the way they actually um, undercut everybody around them until they can just kill them off and then just up their prices afterwards. Yep. No, in fact, uh, and in, in real estate, like who hasn't been to a mall lately? You know, a Westfield or a West Point or a, you know? Now those places are absolutely dreadful. Okay, in terms of what they do to the surrounding shopping areas. You know, I live out around Parramatta and, and I happen to be going past a little suburb called Toongabby. Yeah. And there are all these shops closed, boarded up. People lost their livelihood, right? Because everyone goes down to Westfield and Parramatta. And you go to the wrong part of Parramatta and it's like a bit of a ghost town, right? Because of these mega shops. But you see it out in regional Australia too. All the little towns are closing up. Uh, as I say, that's, that's a good topic for another night. Um, but the way to avoid big shops is to avoid big shops, but we probably won't be able to do it. I really applaud what you I didn't use a credit card very much for a long time because I had this feeling that, you see, if everyone used credit cards, the prices would always go, all go up by about you know, 5%, and so I'd actually be paying for them. And I kind of weakened after a while because I had a job that only paid me monthly. And I've kind of felt a little bit bad ever since. You say, I kind of use the old plastic thing. You see, it's another place where the convenience draws us in, and in fact we're impoverished and enslaved to a certain extent by it. I'm not going too far there because these things have the capacity to be very good. The mall is actually, if it's done right, I think, has the capacity to be a great institution. It's a very efficient form of, of, of proper development. Okay? But it's got to be done with the right heart. And this is where symbolometry is so important. In order to treat your brother justly, you have to first love them. Right? And so your intention, when you build them all, build them all, that's a fantastic thing. But you build it with the intention of making life better for people, rather than ripping them off. Okay, let's move on. Widespread distribution of property, mentioned that. A, um, a, a special area is, there are lots of places where you can't simply have everybody with their own shop and their own, you know, factory or what have you, right? There are things that really need big organisation in order to, to... You wouldn't have a computer industry, I don't think, if you had self-employed people in their own little craft kind of um, uh, workshops, right, building them. But what Chesterton recommended and what has um, been quite successful, but within certain limitations, is a thing generally referred to these days as employee stock ownership. That's where... If you have something like BHP, fantastic, but the shareholders are the employees. And maybe you kind of work out some system so that when they retire they keep their shares, but you know, when they sort of pass on, they're not somehow concentrated into a few hands, but somehow kept with the employees. Right? And there are ways of doing that. So it's employee stock ownership. Probably one of the most outstanding examples of the success of that is in Spain. And an organisation or a group of country, companies known as the Mondragon um, as Industries. 
and there's this whole family of factories, started out with a washing machine factory that was going bust. And the owners of the factory were going to close it up and liquidate the company and all that sort of stuff. And the employees in this town sort of realised that their number was up. Basically, there'd be massive unemployment and all the rest of it. They went along to the, um, the owners and said, look, I don't know what they had to do, but they, they bought the shares. Right? So all of the employees got together, they bought all the shares, and then all of a sudden they've got their own company. What do they do next? Well, they ran the company. And, of course, because they are now self-employed to a certain extent, they did whatever needed to be done uh, to get the companies working. And not only did they make washing machines, but they started other factories and other lines and other developments. And so rather than simply one factory making you know, a relatively limited number of products, you end up with this whole suite of, of industries, this, this whole range of Mondragon uh, industries, including in the finance arm. Just was quite successful. Mondragon, unfortunately, seems to have suffered from its own success to a certain extent. Again, we could do a, a night on that. Uh, largely because people do get greedy after a while and they sort of lose the enthusiasm. Um, and so it's part of the, the frailty of human nature. But it stands out still as an example of what can be done. Ultimately it has to do with accepting, like not taking the, the, the discount, accepting a little bit less. Accepting maybe a little bit of simplicity. So not having the latest and greatest or paying a little bit more or what have you. Yeah? Now that kind of hurts to a certain extent. It requires a certain amount of, this is really old-fashioned, penance. It means that in our day-to-day material life, we, if you want to do it in terms of relationship with God, you can actually see it in those explicit ways, right? especially on Fridays. Right? Um, and things like humility, and something that the economists kind of do totally batty over, and that's inefficiency. I, I find that the whole concept of efficiency these days is the master virtue. If, if something is inefficient, you can't say anything worse than that, can you, to an economist? But inefficiency means that you need 10 employees and you employ 12. That's inefficient. But it means that if something happens in your business where you actually need that extra capacity, you've got it. Or you might need 100 square metres of floor space and you have 150 so that you're able to deal with you know, these extras. Inefficiencies. And so often, when I look at it, and from my sins I used to teach finance, when I looked sort of closely at it, I found so many financial management strategies actually made companies more and more fragile, more and more risk-prone because they were so efficient, they had to run at this high level of efficiency or they'd go bust. So efficient, inefficiency is a really curious thing. I think it's actually quite a virtue if it's done the right way. The curious thing is that if you back off, you end up with more leisure. And if we were to do this on a general scale, people would have more time to sit around and talk, and do stuff. And I won't go into the arguments for that, but you can actually see it in places like PNG. Those guys have an awful lot of spare time. You'd also have cheaper real estate. Now, I've spoken about that a different evening sort of along here. But somehow our greediness and our zeal and our hardworking and all the rest of it actually all goes into the crazy prices we pay for real estate. And so if we, as a community, backed off, we would end up having to go to the bank 
for smaller mortgages, we'd still live in exactly the same house, but it costs us a lot less. Again, I won't go into the arguments there, but it's, it's got to do with the way that land is priced. The third advantage is that we'd be able to afford kids. How many people can't these days? They've got to work two jobs. They've got to have the five mortgages to get the house. They've got to get the new four-wheel drive for Whatever. So you could afford kids in those in those uh, states. And the really bizarre thing, and I, I like to, uh, there's a project, a, a game that I get some of my students to play sometimes, is that if you actually do these things, go in for self-restraint, go in for not being greedy, the curious thing is that when you work it all through, everybody ends up with a better standard of living. You actually end up with more goods and services distributed around the community. Now again, I won't go through the arguments for that. I'm just, you can either accept it or, or whatever, but it's just one of those bizarre curiosities. I think it's the humour of God. Right? He has a bit of a giggle because we're so greedy, we want everything for ourselves, but in fact we do something that destroys our capacity to actually get it. And so if we didn't have sin in our lives, I think we'd actually all be sitting around more materially comfortable. Which would make it a little bit awkward, you know, because, you know, the way that we talk about not wanting to be materialist and all sort of stuff, we don't want the new car, or we don't want the new house, or we don't want the new bathroom. Well, in fact, if we didn't want it so much, we'd probably have it. God's like that. And that, I find, is just one of the, the, the most amazing curiosities of, of this approach. Um, I think St. Francis would understand that. St. Francis of Sisi. Okay. Now let's roll, uh, wrap this up. Economic success for the modern man. Okay, we all want economic success. We hear about the finance market every hour on the radio. You know, they tell us how the stock market's going. And that's supposed to be good for us. The first thing I'd say is that if that speculative stuff I started off with is anything like valid, or even if parts of it are valid, then if the West is going to have robust economic success, it has to be based on a Trinitarian model. It has to be, maybe not explicitly, but it has to be based on the notion that the people who have been blessed with economic power have a relationship to God and freely choose to use that power, that uh, economic warmth of God, as part of their relationship with God. That means um, free acceptance to self-restrain, in other words, not to use the power that we have, or whoever it is who has the economic power. Commitment to use the material gifts to make friends, which kind of goes back to that um, parable I was telling you about before. It means that the job is to evangelise the powerful. It means that Christianity is the answer. I guess that's really what I'm arguing. Most of the people that sort of run our country, no, not, not politicians, but um, you know, sort of business leaders and so on, um, generally don't practice, I don't think, um, explicit Christian outlook, at least in their business life. They might be nice people, they might be doing things that make business sense, and they certainly wouldn't be doing anything that's illegal. 
but they're not really motivated by the kind of charity that you found that we were talking about right at the beginning. And that's the task. And I think we need to be praying and hoping that there will be evangelists coming up, saints that will be somehow able to dress up in whatever it takes, the Italian suit, and sort of go and knock on um, you know, the business leader's door and say, how about if you use your gifts for the good of God? And I'll tell you about God. You know, I, I think that's just be a wonderful thing. Evangelise the powerful. Go along to the, the, to the, um, uh, the CEOs of these companies and all the rest of it. Because that's, I think, what, what needs to be done. By contrast, modernity, modern man, is guided by materialism and individualism. These are the unfortunate things that you know, are really the guiding lights, and they have been the guiding lights since John Wycliffe said that everyone had to make up their own mind as far as what Scripture meant. And uh, people like Machiavelli uh, said that you really can do anything you like as long as it looks good. The material individualist is really what modernity is guided by. Now, you see, that's necessarily in opposition to the Trinitarian approach. And so what am I saying there? Well, for modern man, if you want to have economic success, give away modernity. Okay? Keep all of the good things, the technology and the medical care and all that sort of stuff, but see it as a gift from God. A few years ago, there was an author in the United States who went down in history for <coughs> suggesting that there was a Catholic moment in the United States. Now, unfortunately, I've forgotten the author's name and today I was just finishing these things off and I thought, oh, who was that? But what the argument, the argument goes like this. America is a pretty reasonable place. It's a great place and does a lot of good things. But if it's really going to fly, it has to go from being an okay place to a Catholic place. It has to serve God in that radical and total way, which is selfless, orderly, respects the dignity of the human person. Now, if we can do that, if our culture can, if the United States, Britain, Europe, Swaziland, doesn't matter, whoever does that, they will eventually be the cultural leaders and they'll probably uh, be the people who take the church forward. It hasn't always been the Italians and the Poles, I guess, that have represented Catholicism. Okay. Maybe it won't be in the future. There'll be people that are willing to really live the gospel according to the traditions of the church. Okay, that's about as much as I want to say. Oh, good. I'd like to... You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Garrick Small. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.